Well, hey, Northbrook. Good morning. So excited to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're newer to Northbrook, you may not recognize me. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Northbrook. And uh, it's been a couple months since I had the opportunity to uh, speak with you on the weekend. So super excited to be back as we wrap up our summer series. Can you believe we are wrapping up the summer series? It's kind of sad, right? Like yesterday was the beginning of summer. Today we wrap up the end of the summer series. I told my kids in our house, I don't want to talk about the end of summer. We don't talk about the end of summer. And we don't talk about Bruno. If you didn't get that joke, consider yourself lucky. But the good news, here's the good news, right? Here, here is the beautiful good news of the end of summer. You know what that means, right? Football, right? Football is here only on Thursday nights, Friday nights, Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays. Only those five days, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, you non-football people, those are your nights. Unless you have someone that likes baseball, in which case, you don't have any nights. But anyway, football's back, and as a Bronco fan, Russell Wilson is giving me hope this year. So I'm excited for that. But that is not why you came to hear me talk about the Broncos. So as we wrap up our summer series, I want to start with going back to AD 255. AD 255 was a very dark, horrific time on our little planet. Uh, AD 255, the known world at the time had been in a five-year pandemic. Now, if I had said that back in 2019, that wouldn't have meant much to us, right? But now, uh, a couple years coming out of our own pandemic, we have a little more understanding of what that actually means. Of course, in AD 255, they didn't have the science, uh, they didn't have the, the medical community that we have now, and so if you can imagine, it was an even more scary time. They didn't understand what was happening, they just knew people were dying. And in fact, at one point uh, in the five years, uh, the, the uh, pandemic started AD 250, and, and so in, in the span of that five years, at one point... Uh, at its height, in Rome, for example, in one city, 5,000 people died in one day. So it was a very scary time, very dark time, but it was an even worse time for one group of people, Christians. See, back at the beginning of the pandemic, in AD 250, the, the Roman authorities needed someone to blame. It's funny how some things never change. And so they looked around for who they could blame for all that was going wrong, people dying, and they, and they set their sights on an easy target. See, there was one group of people that were not worshiping the Roman gods. Christians. And so they said it's the Christians' fault that everybody's dying. It's the Christians' fault that our, that our world is such a scary place. And so Christians around that time were being persecuted. They were, they were being mocked. They were being shunned. And so it was a very, very difficult time to be a human, but it was an even more difficult time to be a Christian. And yet, here's what's interesting. 8255, there was one group of people five years into the pandemic that were going around caring for the sick, burying the dead bodies that were just left out in the streets, caring for the poor, putting their own lives on the line, engaging with those that had no help. And you know what that group of people was, right? It was the Christians. 
the very same people that were blamed at the beginning of the pandemic for the pandemic, those are the ones who are going around five years later and they're actually helping the very same people who had blamed them and shunned them and in some cases tortured them, thrown them in prison. Those people, they were going out and burying their family members. Loving the sick. It was Christians. And all throughout the early years of the church, there's this repeated theme. And here's what's important to realize. Like nowadays we, we look at that and we go, well, yeah, like, you know, people care for each other. But you have to understand that the, the idea that humanity had in AD 250, that in those years, the idea, people didn't have the idea that humans had value. It was an honor culture. You, you should take care of your family. But you had absolutely no responsibility to take care of the poor or the sick or someone outside of your social circle. You had no responsibility. You didn't have to feel sorry for them. So the idea that a group of people would take care of others, that was a new idea in the world. And all throughout early church history, we see the early church loving people and, and really in a very profound way, changing the world. Example after example. So, example. So, for example, in the pandemic that we've been talking about, in one city, Carthage, AD 255, there's a letter from Carthage, Carthage's bishop, Cyprian. And in this letter, he implores the city's Christians to give aid to their persecutors and to care for the sick. He urged the rich to donate funds and the poor to volunteer for relief efforts, making no distinct distinction. Between followers of Jesus and pagans. Under his direction, Christians buried the dead, left in the streets, cared for the sick, and dying. Fast forward about 50, 60 years, AD there's another plague that breaks out. And a man named Eusebius, who's not a Christian, is writing a letter. He's just observing what is going on. Listen to what he writes. Alone in the midst of this terrible calamity... The Christians proved by visible deeds their sympathy and humanity. All day long, some continued without rest to tend the dying and bury them. Others rounded up the huge number reduced to scarecrows all over the city and distributed loaves to them all. So their praises were sung on every side and all men glorified the God of the Christians and confessed that they alone were pious and truly religious. Did not their actions speak for themselves. Fast forward about a hundred years, Alexandria, Egypt, there's another crisis, there's another plague going about killing people. And we read one writer's thoughts. He writes, the Christian patriarch of that city organized a group of men recruited from the poor classes to transport and nurse the sick. They were called the Parablani which means the reckless ones, because they risk their lives by exposing themselves to contagion while assisting the sick. The reckless ones. And I bring all this up, and here's the point that I want to make. Here's our starting point. The early church changed the world, and it wasn't with an angry Twitter tweet. It wasn't with a boycott. It wasn't with shunning the rest of the world and kind of just dissing themselves from culture. It was through reckless love. 
The early church changed the course of the world. The reason that we have hospitals that care for the poor and the sick today, the reason that we believe that all humans have dignity and value was because of Christians 2,000 years ago. And Christians haven't always got it right. The early church fought and bickered and had its issues. And all throughout the past 2,000 years, the church has had its issues and its shortcomings. But understand that the reason that Christianity moved forward in those early years was because of reckless, crazy love. And so now we come to 2022. And I feel like this is another pivotal moment in the history of our little planet. We're coming out of a worldwide pandemic. Those that study history would say that we should not experience another pandemic for about 100 years. Hopefully we'll be long gone by the time of the next one. But we're coming out of this pivotal moment. And, and even in the, let's just focus on, on America. Let's just focus on the American church. I feel like we're in this pivotal moment for the American church. Over the past few years over COVID, like we, we've seen some pretty ugly things. Division, fighting, immaturity, hypocrisy. Barner Research would suggest that between 50 to 75% of American pastors either quit or thought about quitting in the past two years. When you look at the young people in the room, the next generation, again, Barner Research would suggest that as we look at the young people in the room, most of them are going to leave the church as they head off to college, and we're not sure how many are going to come back. And so what do we do with that? I, I don't think business, at usual, business as usual is going to be enough as we head into whatever is next for the American church. And so I think the key as we look forward to what's next is looking back. Looking back not only at how the early church handled adversity and difficult times, but even more than that, looking at what Paul writes and what the early gospel writers write that Jesus taught us as we attempt to live our lives and bring God's kingdom down to earth. And so I'd like to start today by reading what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, because I'm just going to read two verses, but in these two verses, I think that the early church was given their marching orders in these two verses. I think a lot of what the early church did can be summed up in these two verses. And I think that we can learn a lot about what is expected of us as we continue living our lives for Christ in these two verses. So 1 Corinthians 16, it's, it's the last chapter, the book of, first book of Corinthians. Paul is kind of wrapping things up. He's doing some housekeeping items. He's like, hey, say hi to so-and-so. When Timothy comes, treat him nicely. Yeah, shout out to so-and-so. Right? But in all that are these two verses that contain these powerful, beautiful words. Paul writes, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Now, there's something powerful about when you, when you say something out loud. It's why when you meet someone, you, you know, if you want to remember their name, uh, you have a much better chance of remembering their name if you actually say their name back to them out loud. And so uh, what I'd like us all to do is I'd like us all to read this out loud together. So if you will, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. In the time we have left, what I want to do is I just want to dissect these two verses. So be on your guard. 
In Paul's day, every city had guards. Guards that patrolled the outer walls. There were guards in the city of Corinth. Most cities had guards. And their job was to be highly alert for threats. Every city had guards that would be posted 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They would take shifts. And they, if they were a good guard, they would be alert. They'd be watchful. They wouldn't be napping. They wouldn't be playing games. They would be watchful because they knew that if they were not alert, it could not only cost them their life, but it could cost them the lives of every single person in the city. And so when Paul writes and he says, be on guard, what he's talking about is as you go through life, it is an alertness. It's an awareness. It's paying attention. And I think when we, we read, be on your guard, right, it can, it can bring about negative connotations just based on the language Paul uses where we're like, okay, I need to watch out for negative things, for threats, for dangers. But I think what Paul is writing here is bigger than just negative things. For example, I don't think what Paul is saying is you really should watch more network news. You need more negativity in your life. Now, obviously, we need to be aware of what's going on in our country. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world. So, so we're not going to put our heads in the sand. But I don't know about you. There's a, there's a level of negativity that I can handle. And then if I continue to consume more of it, I begin to lose my hope and my joy and all of the things that Paul says we as followers of Christ are supposed to have. So I think when, when Paul says be on your guard, right, he's talking about awareness of, of, of threats and evil. But, he, but more than that, I think the picture is much bigger than that. What, what Paul is saying when he says be on your guard is be alert not just for all the ways the world is wrong, but also for all the ways the Holy Spirit through your life wants to make it right. Be on your guard. Be alert not just for all that is wrong with the world, but also for all the ways the Holy Spirit through your life wants to bring the kingdom of God down to earth. We see a perfect example of this in Jesus' life. As Jesus went about his life, he was constantly looking for opportunities to bring the goodness in the kingdom of God down to earth. I love in John 9, Jesus is walking down this road and there's this blind man on the side of the road. And you have to imagine that people have walked by and ignored, dismissed this blind man his whole life. Thousands of times people have walked by this blind man without a second thought. And I love that the gospel writers say that Jesus noticed the blind man. He noticed him. He saw him. He was looking for opportunities and he sees the blind man. And all throughout the Gospels, we, we, that's, we see Jesus at work doing, doing these things, noticing people, right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector in the tree. Jesus notices him, says, hey, come down. I'm going to your house. Little children who are in that society dismissed. They're supposed to be out of sight, out of mind, right? Jesus welcomes the little children, notices the little children. The Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus notices her. Lepers, the lame. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus looking for opportunities to love people and to bring the goodness of God down to earth. Jesus is alert for opportunities. For Jesus, it wasn't about just tasks, right? It wasn't about just accomplishing a goal, right? Jesus came to earth to die. But as Jesus goes about accomplishing his task, he sees people. And that's difficult for me because I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a task person. Like I'm a checklist person. Anyone else in here like a task checklist person? Yes. You know what I'm talking about. Like I love making checklists and then checking them off. Oh, nothing better. And please don't get in the way of my checklist. 
But the reality is, life is not about checklists. It's about the people that we interact with as we go about our checklists and our tasks. Life is about people. Life is about loving people as we go about our day. But here's what I know, and some of you may disagree with me, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. You're a lot more distracted than you think you are. Like, I think we can all go about our day and be like, no, I'm alert, I'm aware. Like, if God were to send me an opportunity to love someone, I would notice. Like, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention. But the reality is we are all a lot more distracted than we think we are. How many of you would say, you know what, I'm a pretty, uh, I pay attention, I'm, I'm a detailed person, like I notice things, like I'm pretty good at that sort of thing. Show of hands. Everyone's like, I don't know where he's going with this, I'm afraid to raise my hand on this one. A few of you are bold enough, I'm like, yeah, that's me. Alright, let's just test this out. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch a video, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to focus on how many times the team in white passes the basketball, right? How many times does the team in white pass the basketball? Anybody think they know? 13? 13's correct. However, did you notice the dancing bear? Let's watch this again. Now, the first time that you saw that video, whether it was today or maybe, maybe you've seen that video in the past, which is fine. The first time you saw that video, how many people missed the dancing bear? Show of hands. Most of us. How? Like, there was a moonwalking bear on a big screen television. <laughs> and you just missed it. You were focused on something else. And if you can miss a moonwalking bear on a huge screen, could it not be possible that you're missing opportunities to love the people around you? That you're missing opportunities to bring the goodness of God down to earth because you're distracted with counting how many times the white team passes the basketball. People that study culture, study history, experts would tell you that we are the most distracted human beings that have ever walked the planet. I was at Bay Beach a couple weeks ago, and um, it's a, for those of you that aren't familiar with Bay Beach, it's in Green Bay, it's an amusement park, and uh, I was in line with my kids for the ride that encourages road rage, <laughs> the bumper cars, and... Um, Right next to us was this lady, I'm, I'm assuming she was the mom, maybe she was a babysitter, but there was this lady and this 10-year-old boy, and uh, they're right next to us, so I couldn't help but watch what was going on, and, and the 10-year-old boy, just being your typical 10-year-old boy, he was excited to be there, he's pointing out all this stuff, mom, look at the, I don't know if he said mom, but you know, he's pointing out to her, look at the bumper cars, like, you know, check this out, look at that, and he's asking questions, and everything that he said, every question he asked, this, the response was the same from this lady, it was just kind of a grunt, uh-huh, yep, mm-hmm. Yep. And so uh, I, I couldn't help but look over. 
And I noticed that she was playing a game on her phone. Whole time, just playing a game on her phone. And I want to be clear, in that moment, I, I, I can honestly say I didn't judge her. I don't want anyone to judge my parenting on just a slice of five minutes of interacting with my kids. Every parent has moments where they just need to zone out or get a break. So I didn't, I didn't judge her. In fact, I didn't even know if it was a mom. Could have been a babysitter. Could have been someone else. But what I did feel in that moment was I did feel sad. Because I realized that there are plenty of moments in my life where my three kids are trying to connect with me and I'm distracted. My wife in our house is, is the expert at connection. She's a people person. Uh, and so she's so good at connecting with our kids, connecting with people. And so occasionally she will lovingly or maybe not so lovingly have to be like, John, your kids are trying to connect with you. Or John, I'm trying to connect with you. But I'm distracted. And it's usually not bad things, right? Like trying to connect with other people on social media or, or browsing sports center on my phone or working or whatever it is. Like they're not horrible things, but, but I have to wonder if, if in my focus on those things, I'm missing out on something better. Connecting with the people that I'm, that I'm with. What would it look like to wake up each day and make paying attention to the opportunities you have a priority. As you go about your day, stay-at-home parents, right? You have this long list of things you need to do, right? Cooking, cleaning, chauffeuring, right? And all of that, I believe, is sacred work given to you by God. It's important work. But what would it look like as you, as you think about all the things you have to do in the morning that you add to the top of that list being aware of the opportunities that God is going to give you to love the people around you well? For those of you that head off to a job each day, as you head off to the job and you have this list of things you need to get done, and again, I think that is important, sacred work, providing for your families is beautiful work. But as you, as you go to your work, what would it look like on the top of your list of things that you need to get done? What would it look like to add to the top of that list being aware of the opportunities that you're going to have to love the people that you come in contact with, to bring the kingdom and the, the goodness of God into that space? Now, to be clear, what I'm not talking about is image management. I'm not talking about just trying to act like a good Christian, you know, like, okay, I need to act more loving. I'm not talking about image management. What I'm talking about is believing deep in your soul that God is at work in your life and in the lives of the people that you interact with, and he is inviting you into that space. That the Holy Spirit is alive and active in your life, and there is opportunity for you if you will look for it. When I met my wife, uh, she wasn't a huge baseball fan, uh, but I am. So she learned to love baseball. Now she loves baseball, and there'll be times where she'll say stuff, and I'll act like I knew that and be like, actually, wow, you know more than I do. But anyway, she likes to give me a hard time because of the two of us, she is the only one that has caught a baseball at a Major League Baseball game. But I like to tell how that story happened because there's a little bit more to it than that. So we were sitting at uh, Miller Park, which is now American Family Field, and uh, we're sitting behind the rain tarp, like, you know, eight rows back. And uh, I always chuckle that American Family Field has a rain tarp since it has a roof. But anyway, um, and so we're, we're sitting about eight rows back. 
and uh, a foul ball comes our way, and of course our whole section, right, gets up and is clamoring for the ball, and it lands like four or five rows behind us, and it starts to ricochet back and forth, and you know, bounces three or four times, and then it lands in the lap of the only person that is not standing trying to get the ball. <laughs> My wife. And she's like, oh, that wasn't that hard. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think... As followers of Jesus, we just assume that if God wants us to do something, the opportunity will just drop in our lap. Like, if he really wants me to love that coworker or that family member, if he really wants me to, to do something out of my comfort zone, like, he'll just make it super obvious. Just drop in my lap. But you know what? I think, I think the beauty of our God is, is more often than not, what he does is he just gives us opportunity to get on the field and play. Like more often than not, he wants us to stand up out of our seat and walk down to the field and just tap the security guard on the shoulder and be like, actually, I, I need to go on the field. I'm, I'm supposed to be playing. Now, don't do that in American family field. Like I'm just using it as a metaphor. Like our Heavenly Father wants us to seize opportunities. Occasionally, they might drop in our lap. But more often than not, the opportunity is for us to be on guard looking for them and then take them. Continuing on, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to condense all of these, these, these short sentences, these short ideas into one thought. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Right? I'm sure each one could be its own sermon. There's a little bit of nuance in each of those, but I believe I can do justice to the text. We're going to condense it for the sake of time into one thought. When Paul says, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, what is he, what is he saying? At the core of what he's saying, I believe, is this. You can't let fear call the shots. You can't let fear run your life. See, it's one thing to notice opportunities to love people, that are hard to love, especially, right? Anybody, right? Love, I'm not, we're not necessarily talking about loving people that are super easy to love, right? I mean, maybe, occasionally. But what about the hard people, the people that are hard to love? The coworkers that are hard to love, the family members that are hard to love, the people in our life that just show up and cause chaos. Like, it's one thing to notice opportunities, but it's another thing to have the courage to actually enter into those opportunities. Last week, our family uh, was on vacation in Chicago, and we went to the Shedd Aquarium, and I just love, I love animals. My entire life, I've absolutely been fascinated with animals. Anyone else just love animals? Yeah, a few of you. What's wrong with the rest of you? No, just kidding. Um, and in fact, my wife likes to joke that I go through life like a cheetah, and then when I go to the zoo, I become a sloth, which is kind of true, but I always respond to that, that she doesn't understand how I can stare at animals in the zoo all day, and I don't understand how she can stare at clothes at TJ Maxx all day. We all have our hobbies. And so we're at the Shed Aquarium, and we have this opportunity to pet the stingrays. I don't know if you've ever had that chance to pet the stingrays somewhere, but we had this opportunity. It's so fun. And so I think we have a picture. Uh, there I am petting the stingrays. And yes, I know you're wondering, yes, that is a Russell Wilson Denver Broncos jersey, hot off the presses, repping that at the Shed Aquarium. So anyway, we're petting the stingrays. I look over, and uh, my wife and I, we have three kids. Uh, we have a 13-year-old, 10-year-old, 7-year-old, girl, boy, girl. And my 13-year-old petting the stingrays, having a great time. But my other two children are holding back. 
and can tell that they are nervous to actually pet the stingray. But what's interesting is they're each taking different approaches. So my 10-year-old son is, is stepping away, had stepped away from the edge, and he kind of put his hands in his pockets, kind of like a, I'm not petting them and you can't make me kind of posture. But my seven-year-old daughter, she was much more creative. She was standing at the very edge of the tank, uh, acting like she was wanted to pet them. But every time a stingray came by, she would get T-Rex arms. But, oh, man. Bummer. I can't reach them, Dad. Too bad. What's next? And so I got, I, I, I'll be honest, I got a little irritated. I was like, man, they need to pet the stingrays. And, and I had to take a second, like, actually, like, take a step back and think, like, why is it so important to me as a dad they pet the stingrays? Uh, because parents, I think sometimes we want our kids to do stuff, and it's about our ego more than our kids. Umpired enough baseball to see that in play. And so I had to step back and go, okay, why is it so important that they pet the stingrays? And I got to a point where I was like, no, you know, I really don't think this is about my ego. I think this is about me as their father wanting them to go through life and not allowing fear to call the shots. Even in simple things like petting a stingray, like, I want them to do stuff and do it afraid. And so I didn't, like, say, hey, we're not leaving till you pet the stingray or anything like that. I just, we just stayed, right? We just stayed at the tank. My wife, myself, my oldest daughter, having fun. And I waited. And eventually, after a few minutes, they both got the courage. They reached out, and they pet the stingrays. We have a picture of my son, Jace, finally reaching out. I wish, I wish we had gotten the picture at a different angle, because if you could have seen his face after he pet the stingray, he was so pumped. But here's the thing. As his father, I, I guarantee you, I was even more excited. And I have to believe that our Heavenly Father looks down on us, from heaven. He's with us too, but he, he looks at us and he sees us going through life. And let's just be honest. Some of us have had a really hard couple years coming out of COVID and we're not interested in loving people. We're just interested in surviving. And we're going through our days. And we got our hands in our pocket and we're like, I'm not looking for opportunities to love people. I just, just want to make it through the day. And others of us, like, you know, we, we've done this Christian thing long enough, we know we can't do that. So we're acting like we're looking for opportunities to love people. But if we're, if we're being honest, right, we got the T-Rex arms and we have no interest in loving people that are hard to love right now. Like, we're just... And I think our Heavenly Father is like, oh, there's so much life on the other side of your fear. Now, when you step out and do something afraid and you, you attempt to be a part of the goodness of God, will it always go well? <laughs> no. No, you may attempt to love someone that's hard to love. You may do something you feel like God's calling you to do. It may not go well, but, but it's not about the results. That's hard for me to say as a goal results oriented person. It's not about the results. It's about being faithful to what you feel the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. So as we step out in fear and we step into opportunities to be a part of the goodness of God and to love people— we have no control over the results, and that's okay. And if it doesn't go well, it doesn't mean we've failed. If, we, if we're faithful, we're successful. And some of us are like, well, I'll do it the second, I, the second that I don't feel afraid. I'll be more than happy to do it. Here's the thing. You're going to have to do it afraid. When my kids stuck their hands in the water and pet the stingray, they both felt fear, but they did it anyway. Sometimes when we step out of our comfort zone... It's going to be extremely difficult. 
And, let, and hear me clearly, I'm not just saying that you just like, go after everything and anything that makes you uncomfortable. What I am saying is, as followers of Jesus, we have an opportunity to listen to the Holy Spirit and ask our Heavenly Father what opportunities and what situations He is asking us to step into. And then do it. Afraid. So what would it look like this week in one area of your life to step out of your comfort zone a little bit? Maybe with a certain individual, family member, coworker, neighbor. What would it look like, or what would it look like to simply ask the Holy Spirit, is there an area of my life that I'm standing with my hands in my pockets afraid to touch that you are asking me to engage with? Be on your guard. Be courageous. And then Paul says, do everything in love. You know, sometimes if we're, we can do everything right, we can look for opportunities and we can have courage, and then we're still not sure what the right thing to do is because life is complicated. There are times where we can, we can be absolutely doing our best to bring the kingdom of God down and, and look for opportunities to love people, and we have the courage, but we're like, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is in this situation. Because life is messy. And Paul writes, the guiding North Star, if you will, is everything you do should be done in love. Well, what does that mean? That's pretty vague. Well, Paul reminds us of what love is a few chapters before this. And Pastor Mike covered this last week. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time diving into this. If you missed that message, check it out. But real quick, for those of us that missed last week, or as a reminder, a few chapters before this, Paul spells out what it means to do everything in love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. Is not proud. Does not dishonor others. Is not self-seeking. Is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So look for opportunities. Have courage. And you do everything with patience. Do everything with kindness. Do everything not seeking your own comfort, but seeking the goodness, the good of others. Do everything with hope. Believing the best about people. See, when we put these three things together, the three things that Paul is talking about in this portion of Scripture, when we put together looking for opportunities with courage and doing it in love, that is what the world is drawn to. That's what's so contagious about the kingdom of God. It's, it's kind of like, like coffee. Anybody like coffee? I love coffee. The rest of you, I'm not sure what's wrong, but it's, but it's okay. We love you anyway. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sue. So I love coffee. But here's the thing. Coffee is a combination of a few different things, right? It starts with a cup. This is, uh, we, uh, our family collects cups when we go on vacation. And so this is our Chicago cup from our, our latest vacation. See, but you need a cup. And, and I think that the cup matters, right? Like the cup should make you smile. So whatever that means for you, like my cup so that I drink coffee and make me smile. So uh, it starts with a cup. Like if you don't have a cup, you're just pouring coffee into your hands. You're burning your hands. Like nobody wants that, right? So it starts with a cup. 
But then you need hot water, but, it, but not just hot water alone. Because if you have hot water, what are you going to do with hot water, right? You can make tea, but we all know tea doesn't taste good no matter what tea drinkers say. <laughs> so you got hot water. But then you also need the coffee beans, right? And if you, if you have the coffee beans in the cup without the hot water, right, you can put chocolate on them and like eat them, but that's, that's not a drink, right? It's a combination of the three things, the cup, the hot water, the coffee beans, that make the amazing thing we know as coffee. I love what Paul writes in the second letter to the church in Corinth. He writes, For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. Like a sweet-smelling incense. But here's the thing. It takes all three elements. Looking for opportunities, courage, and love. That is what is so compelling about being a follower of Christ. If you, if you look for opportunities and you have courage, but you don't have love, you're just a Christian jerk. If you have love, but you don't look for opportunities and you don't have courage, what good is it doing anyone else? It's a combination of those three things. When we look for opportunities to be a part of what God's doing, when we listen to the leadings of the Holy Spirit, and when we have the courage to step into it and do it with love, that is what the world notices and says, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, but I sure want to have Christians in my life. That's what the world needs in 2022. So as we wrap up this message, I've asked the worship team to play a specific song for us. Um, I thought up until I researched it that this song just came out, but apparently it came out in 2012. So it's been around a while. This song is called The Proof of Your Love. And I love the lyrics in this song because basically what this song is saying is for a lot of people in your life, the proof that there is a loving God is reflected in how you live. And so as we close out our summer series, here's my challenge. If you don't know this song, I, I don't, I'm not asking you to sing along. What, what I would like you to do is I would like you to reflect on our summer series and what we've said today. And I'd like you to grab one thing that you feel your Heavenly Father is inviting you into this fall. One thing. Maybe from today it's looking for opportunities or having more courage or being more loving. Maybe it's something that was said this summer by one of our guest speakers or Pastor Mike. Just one thing that you can step into this fall and actually apply to your life. And so as the worship team plays this final closing song of our summer series, that's the challenge, to pick out one thing in an effort to love like Jesus and bring the goodness of God into a world that desperately needs it. So today as you go, may you be on guard, you stand firm in the faith, may you be courageous, may you be strong, and you may you do everything in love. Amen? Amen. Have a great Sunday.